podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another World Cup podcast here on Anfield Index. The quarterfinals have come and gone now, and England are still in Russia with only their second World Cup semi-final on foreign soil awaiting them, their first since 1990 to look forward to. So joining me to discuss what's seemingly the most united England side in years uh, and touch on the other big results in the quarterfinals, of course, Brazil's uh, you know, Brazil and Russia's departure from the competition, Croatia, getting through to the semi-finals, of course, again. Um, I've got co-host of the AI Writers uh, podcast, Tom Holmes, and former European football analyst for Opta, uh, a new voice on AI here for us, uh, Uma Jawaid. Hello. Uh, look at that jinx, perfect. <laughs> really in sync there, guys. Uh, yeah, great to speak to you both. I mean, we are getting towards the business end now of the competition. So much to talk about. Um, and I guess the the main surprise there is that um, I wasn't really expecting Tom. Obviously, I spoke to you right right at the start of this when we do our predictions for the for the tournament. Um, of course, the draw did favour England, and we, perhaps we, we we discussed some scenarios where you know, we we could have gone to this stage if ever everything went uh, our way. But um, here they are. You know, first World Cup semi final since 1990. Um, as I mentioned at the start, only the second time um, on foreign soil that this has happened uh, um, for us. Um, What's your general reaction to that? I mean, what were your expectations for this side ahead of the tournament? And uh, what are you thinking now? Um, I mean, I, as I think I said at the time, I fancied England to make the quarterfinals and get knocked out by a decent side, either Brazil or Germany. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, I feel as though if you'd said to me, you know, England's run-in would have been Colombia, then oh, Sweden, yeah. then Croatia, I would have maybe said, you know, we'd probably get further in the quarterfinals. Um, but obviously, you know, you never you can never predict these sorts of things. I'm very, very happy the way England have performed. I think everything's looking really good. The team are playing well. Defending has been very, very solid. They look, as you said, they look a real, real unit. Southgate's got them playing as a as a real team, which has been such a crucial crucial uh, element of that. And I feel as though England have got what it takes to go all the way. I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, they've only beaten crap sides. They're not playing very well. Can't score from normal play. This, that, and the other. But I feel as you can only beat who's put in front of you. And England have deservedly beaten everyone who's been put in front of them apart from the Belgium game which was which you can't you can't look at because it was two reserve sides so I think you know this England first team are looking pretty good overall they're looking pretty solid and probably the best thing from England's perspective is that it looks like there is more to come from them it looks like they have more gears to find which yes okay maybe they need to find more gears if they're going to beat Croatia and then potentially France or Belgium but they've got those gears to find in my opinion yeah for sure and you, and you do wonder I guess um, obviously you mentioned that Belgium game uh, for me, that was going to be the first sort of test we saw for England up against quality opposition, and, and, and then of course both sides rotating heavily for that game, second string. So we we, we still haven't really seen, I think, uh, this England side up against a truly um, you know, top side with all those players fit. For example, Colombia obviously missing James Rodriguez uh, for for their game with us. So Croatia is de- definitely going to be an interesting test, and I do wonder whether we'll see those sort of new gears uh, reached by England. Umar, just bringing you in here, obviously. Great to speak to you on AI as well. Um, in your opinion, I mean, did you sort of share Tom's sort of expectations of, of this England side? I mean, um, the draw that we that we have had in, in the end has been quite kind to us. 
Um, but the way in which they're playing, the way in which they've been covered by the media, the general feeling around the camp, it all feels very um, positive and, and un-England over the last two decades, isn't it? Yeah, really. Yeah, definitely. That's how it's been. But for me, my following of England's national team has always been very different to most English people. Um, I was born here, raised here, but when I was nine years old, I moved to Pakistan. So I had this um, love for the country <laughs> because uh, I wasn't living here. So I identified myself as English when I was there. And I used to follow the 2006 World Cup and I was full of optimism and love for them. So I was always united behind England as a footballing nation. That was always something for me because I was from I was living somewhere else. So you just love the country more. But um, for me, the biggest thing is the reason I believe before the World Cup started, I thought, you know what, we can have a good campaign. The reason behind that was our attack. Raheem Sterling finished the season with more than 20 goals. He was amazing for Manchester City. He was arguably the best attacker. Um, you know, they say in American sports, they say clutch moments. This guy delivered in clutch moments for Manchester City. And he was one of the driving forces behind them winning the title. Harry Kane had a season where he scored 30 goals. Okay, 29, one of them, you know, you can talk about it if you want. But, um, you know, Harry Kane's one of the best center forwards in world football. We have him. We've got, um, we've got a lot of t- a talent there. We've got Deli Ali, who's really good. We've got Carl Walker, who won a title. We've got Jordan Henderson, who's part of a Liverpool side that finished in the Champions League final, you know, in, uns- you know, it's really unsuccessful what happened there, but, you know, it was really interesting. Right? We have a lot of talent, but people were bringing us down as if we're a rubbish national team and, you know, we're going to struggle to get through our group. But I generally didn't think that was going to happen. I thought we were, even in the English golden generation of 2006, and you can argue if 2010 was a golden generation squad, when you really look at the squad, there wasn't a lot of talent there. You know, Gerard was after his groin injury. He wasn't the same player. There was a lot of that going on during that time. But one thing we didn't have was a number nine like Harry Kane. And uh, I think if you see Tottenham play, whenever you see them play, you know, that guy can score out of the blue. And I know he scored penalties, but it's not easy scoring penalties. Us Liverpool fans know that. Last season, we didn't get a lot of penalties, but when we did, we missed a few of them as well. So I I was quite optimistic, actually, coming into this, because I didn't look at any national team and think, you know what, they're going to run away with this. No one. The only ones I was worried about is Brazil because Tite did a really good job there, but you know um, they didn't really deliver the way I was expecting them to. Absolutely. I think that has obviously been one, been one of the themes of this World Cup, hasn't it? Been you know, sort of the, the biggest sides that perhaps people had expected to to make it into into these final rounds of the competition haven't done as well. Um, you know, players who we know the talent amongst the group is is not in question whatsoever, but they're. They haven't managed to you know, either click as a unit or already just turn up on the day itself, which, of course, that, that is the story of tournament football. I mean, no matter how good you've been throughout the entire tournament, if, if you don't turn up, turn up on the day, of course, it means very little. Um, and I think also one thing that Tom mentioned at the start there, we were talking about this England side, both on and off the pitch, seeing, seeming very unified. Um, you often find in these competitions that the teams that perhaps aren't stocked with the most quality, I know England do have some good players um, I think we do perhaps put them down a bit too often, but you know, those teams that are better units than perhaps a collection of individuals do tend to benefit from these competitions. So, um, Tom, just to come to the game then, I mean, I have to mention it. Um, first goal, I guess, you know, Harry Maguire with another set-piece goal, and you mentioned a little bit there, you know, people sort of deriding England in terms of uh, you know, the manner of their goals and how it's 
it's not exactly the most free, uh, you know, free-flowing football at times, but um, you know, it's effective. Um, and uh, you know, Harry Maguire's had a fantastic tournament so far, hasn't he? Yeah, he's been really solid. Um, defensively, he's been very strong. He's been brave with the way he's passed out the back. There were a couple of moments in the first game against Tunisia where it looked like things yeah. might have gone a bit wrong. <laughs> and the thing is, there were a few moments where you might have thought that a lesser side, a less brave side, would have stopped doing the way that they, the way the way they played their football. But I think England kept to that, stuck to their guns because Southgate only has one way of doing things, and that's the way that he's instilled into this side, and that's really come off. Yeah, Maguire's been a really less... creative all tournament. Yeah, certainly a less brave England side that, we, that we've, we've seen over the years as well, haven't we? Well, I mean, they didn't panic. They've not panicked once in this tournament. And that's been one of the things that I've been really impressed about. That second half of extra time against Colombia, they looked dead. Oh, they yeah. looked out of it. They looked absolutely shot. But somehow they managed to find an extra 15 minutes and they had the momentum going into penalties. And that was so important. Um, yeah, Maguire's been really helpful off set pieces as well. And this is another good set piece goal. Um, a lot of people don't seem to think set piece goals are sustainable. And I think they have a point to the extent that you can't go an entire Premier League season winning games off set pieces. But this is a six-game tournament, realistically. If you exclude the Belgium game, which most of, these, like, most of the lads didn't play in, it's a six-game tournament. Six games is more than long enough for, for, a, for an unsustainable thing to sustain, if that makes sense. You know, six games is not a long enough period for the, for the regression to the mean to sort of kick in. So there's every chance England can keep getting creative, creativity off set pieces. The issue, I think, for England is that they kind of... They haven't really varied their set piece tactics too much, which has been very interesting. That a lot. Uh, this was clocked after the Maguire goal. A couple of the lads in a different group chat said, "Like we haven't really varied our set piece tactics." There's four of them. They tend to split. The way they split tends to be slightly different, and the way the, where the ball ends up being set, ends up being slightly different. But you kind of know this four of them stood in the line. They're going to split. It's not. It's not rocket science tactics. It's just good delivery, good headers of the ball, um, and that sooner or later you think someone would have to deal with that. And, I'm potentially worried that that's someone might be Diane Lovren. Um, but yeah, I think England, England set pieces have been really important for them. But that's for me, is not necessarily something that you can derive them for. It, they're playing to their strengths and they've played their strengths really well so far in this tournament. Yeah, of course. And Umar, you mentioned Sterling there as sort of a player that you'd pinpointed you know, based off the season he had last year, or last season anyway, with, with Man City happening to the title. Um, He's a player who, of course, there's plenty of sort of context around how people discuss him, um, especially from sort of the Liverpool fan base sort of perspective. You know, the way in which he left, um, I think plenty are sort of still soured by that in terms of how they talk about Sterling. Then, of course, there's the the fact that you know, two of the, the most widely read papers in the in the country spent the past you know, three or four years uh, committing sort of character assassination on, on the poor guy for the past you know, pretty consistently. And I, I think you do see that in some of the sort of the public. Um, response to him, um, for example, you know, following this game, um, yeah, I think he's, he's more or less consistently got the lowest rating in those BBC player ratings that, that have been put out after each game, etc. Um, what are your thoughts on his performances so far then for this England side at the World Cup? And um, also, maybe t- touch upon his performance against Sweden. And, and, and why do you think he's 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 coming under the, under this criticism? Is it just the case of the fact that there's been such blinkered sort of coverage? Um, on him uh, via the media over the past few years? I think the main reason behind it is because most people who watch the World Cup, you know, the most people who are going to be doing the ratings as well, they're not particularly people who watch a lot of football as well. You need to remember, World Cup's a international uh, event. Everyone watches it. It's, a, it's not just about football enthusiasts. It's the whole country gets behind. And uh, well, people see, they won't see the run he makes. They won't see the first touch to the way he made that touch. 
that resulted in him able to take the ball around the goalkeeper. They're just going to see the fact that this guy was through on goal and he didn't deliver. And he's someone who's missed, he has missed a lot of chances for Manchester City and he has missed some chances for England. He hasn't scored in a very long time now. And um, so he's always going to be criticised because of that. And if you are, you know, Ibrahim Sterling, he's going to get criticism regardless of if he plays good or bad. It's because of who he is, and that's never going to change. But it doesn't help with the fact that he doesn't actually score enough for the country. And um, but he was amazing. If you look at the runs he made, um, he's the he's the player's player. You know, he's the guy who gets the ball between the lines and he can run at you. He's the guy who can uh, what's it called? Run behind the defense. He can play in front of the defense and behind them. That's these are things that are invaluable. You know, and he's also someone I remember when he was at Liverpool. He spoke about the sports science team said when he was a young player, they were shocked that at the 120th minute he made a 70-yard sprint. This is—he's an athlete as well. I mean, it's amazing to have a player like him in your squad. Someone who's technically so skillful, but also have the physical presence that he has. How players just bump off of him. You know, he's so strong. People forget. But I think um, the criticism is a bit merited as well in the sense that he doesn't finish off chances the way he should. But um, yeah, he doesn't obviously deserve to be the lowest ranked player um, in the players who started. Or The thing is that when you're winning, I think everyone looks at players and they'll see everyone's playing great. But if the guy's been missing chances, they'll turn to him. I think personally, it might be a bit controversial, but I thought he was much better than someone like Harry Kane in that game, you know? Um, he's the one player who... He he makes things happen, really. Yeah. I mean, he was doing things that Ali and Lingard should have been doing. He was coming into the deepest pockets, getting the ball and bringing it forward. He was also the player who was doing things that Harry Kane should be doing. He was the one who's stretching play. He's the one making runs through the back line. I don't think Harry Kane is fit when you think about it. Because when you watch him play for Tottenham, the amount of times he goes behind the defence, he, he wasn't doing that enough. You had Sterling doing two people's job as one player. And um, yes, he didn't get on the score sheet. And he did miss a big chance, but I thought he had a fantastic game for England. He was our best player, personally. No, I'd agree. I thought he did sort of drag that defence around, really. And when you look at the qualities that he does have, he does possess as a player with that pace, with that sort of burst of um, acceleration that he can provide. It's, it's, it's crucial in these sorts of games where we are trying to create something out of nothing. Otherwise, you know, if, if you imagine if he wasn't there, it probably would have been far more of a painful encounter than it might ended up being to be honest um do also, do also agree in, in, in relation to him sort of missing chances it is a trait of his you know whilst his intelligence and some of the movement could be exceptional he just he's never struck me as sort of the cleanest finisher the, mo- the most natural finisher um tom just to bring you in sort of briefly on sterling and, and but then i guess we'll sort of um you know, segue on to um how another player is being covered um, throughout this tournament for England and sort of the the difference in reaction to his performances in in Jordan Henderson. But what's your view on sort of um, how Sterling has performed in the tournament so far and just the reaction to it? You know, Umar gave his sort of opinion there that it's, it's, it's you know, international fans are perhaps the most um, aware of a player's skills and you know, club football, etc. Would you blame it on that? I think I think there's a lot of factors at play. I certainly think that's one of them. I think the media coverage doesn't help either because it's one of those things where even if you consciously don't believe it, it seeps into your brain. I think I feel as though 
because of the rhetoric around the World Cup, the fact that a lot of people wanted him dropped for Rashford before the tournament had even started, so a lot of people went into the tournament already not wanting him to play. There's been a lot of factors that basically turned a lot of people against him. And I think I think it's almost impossible to judge Raheem Sterling objectively in this tournament unless you're very, a very, very objective football watcher, which most people aren't, because there's a very much sort of narrative and counter-narrative. A lot of people want to say he's been phenomenal to sort of counteract the fact that people a lot of people don't think he's been that good. I think he's had a mixed tournament. I don't think he's been terrible. I don't think he's been amazing either. Um, his numbers are, are pretty solid. They're not special, but they're pretty solid. Um, his dribblings, 1.5 dribbles per 90 is pr- 1.5 dribbles per game. Sorry, is pretty decent. One, one and a half free kicks a game. That's decent as well. 1.3 key passes. That's solid. Um, so his numbers are all, they kind of stack up, but there's some other numbers there that kind of indicate why he's not passing the eye test. So he's had 1.8 shots per game without scoring a goal. If you keep taking shots, you keep missing chances, people are going to turn against you. Um, I, I say I don't think he's doing a lot wrong. I think he's been a little bit unlucky, particularly in the Sweden game. But the Sweden game is one of those where you watch it and you, you're desperate for him to score because you know people are going to use it as a weapon against him if he doesn't. Yeah. No one's going to remember all the good stuff he does in the game when he missed two big chances. Uh, obviously, one of them was chalked off for offside anyway. And the other one is he gets dispossessed quite a lot, 2.3 dispossess, dispossesses per game, which is, you know, it's a style of a trait. High, high, you know, high number dribblers are going to lose a lot of the ball. Um, he does lose the ball a lot. And that's, as I say, that's part of his game. But when you are someone who constantly, when people are looking for you to do badly and they see you losing the ball over, over two times a game, people start to get on your back about it. So I think it's one of those where you have to sort of pay a lot of attention to what Sterling's doing. Otherwise, he doesn't necessarily pass the eye test, which, yeah. as you say, for a lot of the uninitiated football fans is a bit of an issue. As I say, I don't think he's had a blinding tournament. I mean, the fact he hasn't scored any goals, the fact he's only notched one assist and that wasn't you know, necessarily a, a really creative chance either. He's not. He's been good and I think he's been a, a better than a lot of people give him credit for. He's certainly not been consistent England's worst player. But I feel as though the best way for him to shut down criticism would be for him to go out and have a blinding tournament. And he, he hasn't been able to quite do that, whether that's a confidence issue, whether that's a case of just bad luck. I, I think it's one of those, isn't it, where you, you can't sort of say he's been phenomenal because I don't think he has. But equally, all the stuff you say about, you know, he, he's, his movement's terrific. He does create chances for others. He does spread the play quite well. And he is doing a lot, having to do a lot of hard work because you're bang on about Kane. His numbers don't really stack up well over the course of the tournament. He's completed one dribble in four games. He's only completed three key passes in four games. Um, so. Kane isn't necessarily doing all the dog work. I felt Kane was excellent against Colombia, by the way, but against Sweden, he was quite anonymous. So you are saying Sterling has to do a lot, especially when you look at this as a multifaceted attack that isn't quite functioning properly and it's not quite firing. So you have to look at Sterling within the connective and within the whole system. But equally, I don't think he's gone out there and had a blinding tournament either because he hasn't stood up and really silenced his haters. You know, he hasn't gone out there, beaten four lads, put in great chances scored loads of goals, you know, and, and, you know, that's not necessarily to say he should be doing those things, but he hasn't been able to quite shake off that sort of, that bad vibe that seems to be around him at the moment. And I'll, I'll move on, to, and I'll move on to talk about Henderson, like you say, I think mm. with the media perception of Henderson, there's two things for me that have made Henderson's stand out in this tournament. One, I think is the pace of international football. Henderson's uh, a very, very good player in terms of controlling games and defending quite well from the defensive midfield position and when the games are a little bit when there's less frenetic counter-attacking play like there is in the Premier League it gives someone like Henderson a little bit more time just to sort of dictate the play a little bit more time to do what he's good at so that the pace of the tournament has definitely played to his strengths 
But if I'm being completely honest, I think the main reason we're looking at Henderson properly is that we're actually considering what he's doing and not what he isn't. Because for Liverpool, there's always this uh, sort of need for your defensive midfielder to be creating 10, 15 chances a game, dominating the play, scoring goals. There's, there's that kind of attitude that Henderson has to be doing more to contribute to the attack. And in this system, he's not being asked to do that. In this system, which is very similar to them, it's a very similar midfield to the way Liverpool play in many respects with the one-two and with Henderson being asked to take a lot of the defensive responsibility and a lot of the controlling responsibility, there is le- people are, are talking less about his creativity in this system, which is the way it should be for me at Liverpool. So I think a lot of it is down to perception rather than actually him performing better. And equally, I think if you're looking at a team that maybe has less standout individuals, where you haven't got a Mo Salah or a Sadio Mane or a Bobby Firmino and you're saying, why isn't Henderson playing as well as them? There's a little bit less pressure on him. There's a little bit less... Uh, media perception that he needs to be doing more and I think that's definitely helped his game. Yeah, it's interesting that you sort of frame it with the perception. I think I think that is correct in terms of the the tasks he's being asked to do for this England side in comparison to what we what we what we'd expect of a midfielder at Liverpool and um I guess it, those expectations did sort of overlap onto what people used to expect of an England midfielder as well when you talk about the golden generation and all the talent that used to be there preceding Henderson of course. But um yeah, within this system, I, I I would agree that he's doing his uh, his role effectively, um, and also the fact that uh, what you, what you mentioned that the pace of international football, I haven't seen one side yet really regularly look to press Henderson into you know not having time on the ball to dictate the play, which to be honest he has done in in, in most of these games in that role that he's been playing. Whereas we know as Liverpool fans. There have been occasions that when he does get targeted in that press from from opposition teams, that's perhaps when you can see him struggle. So I, I think he's actually benefited from that for sure. Um, I've just been in, in, interested a little bit in, in terms of the sort of juxtaposition between um, the reaction to sort of Henderson's performances. Um, I mean, it's difficult to judge anything online, but online in comparison to sort of Sterling's, it's very interesting to me just the way you know, good performances that we know, Tom. Yeah, having watched this game, it's a having watched Henderson play that game many, many times um, and, and just the way in which it's, it's seemingly been defended now. It's, 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 just, it's just interesting to me. Uma, what what have you made of Henderson's performances so far and sort of the reaction to it? You know, yeah, personally, so- um, I, I, I just want to make one uh, point yeah, yeah. before but Tom made about the set-pieces situation yeah, sure. about England and them being found out. Personally, I think because of our and the way the referees are keeping an eye on you know, not being able to even touch an attacking player when he runs into the box is extremely hard for yeah. opposition teams to actually defend against that. If you legally look into the book of how to defend corners, when you've got uh, players giving good delivery and you've got players making, you know, sequencing running into the box, it's really hard to defend against. There's, there's not much they can do legally because there's cameras there. If you do body check someone and he falls into the ground, that's the penalty. So that's why I think England are going to keep succeeding and excelling in this. And if VAR does come to the Premier League, you know, you're going to be in for a lot of games where you're going to have a lot of set-piece goals because we do excel as um, English teams do in set-pieces. We genuinely do. We love it. But, you know, we've got big guys. They're good in the air. And um, what's shocking is that this is Sweden. They're full of grocks. They're big guys. Uh, They're bully teams, you know. They bully small teams. And we went up there against them and we bullied them. And I don't see why we can't do the same to Croatia. The only one who I think would stand well against us is Belgium because, well, they've got Fellaini and they've got 
a lot of big players. So I think that's the only opposition side who I look at and I think they will be able to do with us in set pieces. Other than Belgium, I think we can have all of them on set pieces. And yes, we can win the World Cup by just scoring a lot of goals and corners and indirect free kicks. But what a beautiful way to win it and not have Big Sam as your manager. I was about to say, <laughs> somewhere somewhere <laughs> in the weather spoons across the country, Big Sam is weeping. He's eating a cheeseburger. He's, absolutely, <laughs> he's weeping at the notion that we can win this World Cup on set pieces and direct exactly. play. And it's it's going to be yeah, Gareth Gar- yeah. Southgate who does it if 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 England do manage yeah. that. Um, and that's beautiful. My comment about Jordan Henderson um, is yeah. very different to Tom. Um, sorry, Tom, but I do not expect him to score 10, 10, 15 goals a season or, or I'm not looking at him to be Mo Salah or Sadio Mane. But what I do expect him to be is the metronome, someone who's press resistant, someone when he's pressed, he doesn't turn back and pass it to... Virgil van Dijk or to Matip who and most of the times Matip was was the metronome he was the one who would come forward with the ball who would make the passes um, for me with Jordan Henderson I think he's a, he's a good player I think with Liverpool fans you get extreme he's either rubbish or he's or he's excellent there is no middle ground where you just say he's a good player a good player is someone who will have good games and he will have bad games he's just someone who's a consistent player in a certain level of things you can expect from him. He's not going to see certain passes, you know, and that happens a lot of the time. There's a pass forward, he will go sideways. Um, and I think with him, he has to look at the ball. The ball has to be outside of his feet before he can make that pass. And, um, you know, you need a player who doesn't have to look at the ball often. You know, the ball comes to him, he can drop his shoulders, he can do a shimmy here and there. You see it with Mane a lot of the times, when he plays as a 10, in the sense that, you know, he doesn't even touch the ball sometimes. He'll take that extra second to touch the ball, but because of that moment of hesitating on touching the ball, he's taken a player out of the game. You know, this, there's this intelligence of spatial awareness, the shielding of the ball that Henderson doesn't have. And yes, you're right, that's a lot to ask from your number six, but this is Liverpool Football Club who finished in the Champions League final. Mm. And um, I think we will always want better players because we grew up watching Deep Mahaman there. We were, yeah. I saw Mascherano there, you know. Even when Gerard was playing there, you know, at the end, yes, when he pressed him, he did freak out a bit. But, I mean, there were moments when he... Well, obviously, Steven Gerrard, but I'm not say, I'm saying he has to be Steven Gerrard. I'm not expecting him to score 10, 15 goals, but I'm expecting Fabinho to play there and do a lot of the things that I was expecting him to do. Yeah, that's, and, a, um, that's a, a, a Liverpool context, though. But for an England yeah. full context, I mean, I think do you England think he's context, he's working in this system? I think he's doing excellent for England. And I think the reason is because he plays in front of three centre-halves um, who are all really good on the ball. Um, so you've got one guy playing on the right side who's actually a right-back and he's one of the best right-backs in the world. He's in the top 10 right-backs in the world. He costs £50 million. Pounds. You know, and then in front of him, you've got Kieran Trippier. And if you see England's ball uh, process, the way they move the ball forward, it will come from small, it will come to, um, from Stones to Walker. Walker will give it to Trippier. Trippier will give it to Henderson. Because of that movement, you can't really press them. Because if you press Henderson, if Henderson looks on his sides, he's got two very adept wing backs. And behind him as well, the three centre halves, they're extremely good on the ball. And one of them's actually a fullback who's really fast. So, you know, with England, it's not you can't just press Henderson if you you know and then shut it off because if you do that, you're going to leave the wing backs open, and then what you're going to have is you see 
a lot with Raheem Sterling. He comes really close. Um, you don't, you won't see what's it called that happening a lot of the times because the two attacking midfielders they actually drift to the uh, the wings, so they stretch. They occupy the fullbacks. So you know, with the England game is actually really intelligent the way they play, the way they process the ball out of the play. I'm surprised they don't go long enough, considering you know you got Harry Kane there, and um, I thought you know the English would do that quite often, especially with Carl Walker. You know, on the right side, he's got a really good long ball on him to go a- across the flank, especially towards Deli Ali, who's also really he's relatively good in the air. Um, so I think yeah, he's he's actually having an excellent season for uh, I mean, tournament for England, Jordan Henderson, and I've, you can just see the difference between him and. Eric Dyer, yeah. when they played, um, he's yeah. superior to him in pretty much all departments that you need him to be. And, um, yeah, I think he's been the bright spot. His pass to Sterling was nothing short of phenomenal. Everyone's right. If that was Perlow, everyone's going to be talking about it. It's true, though. You know, he yeah, yeah. up instantly, first time pass straight into the, you know, in the, in Opta, that would have been a chipped through ball. I mean, it was, it was excellent. Straight into the feet. It should have been a goal. I mean, it was, it was a world class pass. And I think that's what he can do when he plays in front of three at the back and you can't really press him. You know, Jordan Henderson will excel in that role and he's going to continue doing that for England, hopefully, towards the World Cup final. Yeah, it's nice to see a system, I guess, then that, that sort of you know, seeks to hide the players' weaknesses and actually boost their their strengths. And I think we have, on the whole, we have seen that from some of the sort of... Um, uh, the way in which England have operated within this system. Just one player I want to talk about um, just before we do move on to the other games because, of course, there was plenty of other action um, taking place in, in the other quarterfinals. But um, obviously, Deli Ali scored that goal. I think similar to what, Tom, you were saying there at the start in terms of um, you know, familiar set-piece routines that we're getting used to now. Uh, that move from open play as well is actually one we've become very familiar with as well to the... the Switch back to either Henderson or I think uh, who was it on this occasion? Was it was it Trippier? Come on, it, it was, was Lingard. Lingard, Lingard. across for the other yeah. goal. But it's that exact same thing we've seen Henderson do quite a lot. It's a, wrapping your boot around the um, the ball, seeking for that far post header. Ali there with a really nicely timed run. But but the player I actually wanted to talk about um, from this game was following that Sweden then did of course throw everybody they could forward on occasion, um, fashioned some chances as well. And, and Jordan Pickford is there again, making some big saves. Um, seemingly riding that wave of confidence from the penalty shootout, of course, as you would expect. Um, how do you think he's fed, um, Tom? Because there were, there were questions around him uh, prior to the start of the tournament. I was one of the players, per people who was have been very to and from pick for this tournament. I wasn't sure he was the best keeper beforehand, but I felt that he probably earned his spot as number one. Um, he started the tournament very rockily. Um, his distribution, especially in the first game, was pretty poor. Felt he could have done better with the penalty against Tunisia. Um, but no, he's he's come on leaps and bounds. He, he was phenomenal in the shootout. And then again against Sweden. I mean, there's a reason he was named man of the match against Sweden. He put in a terrific performance, made two or three really important saves. He looks a confident lad. And I, I think you said it, I think you're bang on when you talk about riding the wave from the penalty shootout. He is a player who right now thinks he can save anything that's put at him. He's he's looking at any sort of shot that's coming at him going, I've got us. Nothing to worry about here, lads. You know, um, I think... A couple of people pointed out that he maybe could have done better in terms of pushing them a bit further away. But I mean, I'm, I think that's maybe a bit harsh. I'm having a look at them again. I think they've made, there's some good saves in there. I think you, as a goalkeeper, your number one priority has to be keep the ball out the back of the net, let the defenders do their jobs. Um, and I think you could argue that maybe you could have done a little bit with, um, 
one or two elements of the, the tournament. I think you could argue you could have done better with the Belgium goal, the Yanazai one. But I think overall he's had a really, really solid tournament. And I think he's coming on leaps and bounds. And I think you're absolutely bang on about the confidence thing. Yeah, it's good Good to see him sort of uh, benefiting from those um, sort of occasions. I think generally throughout tournament football, though, you you do notice that from, from players, especially goalkeepers as well, when they have a game like that, when they make a big save or a collection of big saves. Yeah, so it's definitely good to see him sort of riding that wave. Um, moving on from England then, obviously, um, I thought... The other sort of, there's plenty of drama in, in all these matches, but Brazil versus Belgium then, guys. Um, Brazil, you know, many people's favourites, especially after Germany went out of the competition in such a sort of desperate fashion. Um, you know, collection of talent that, you know, Brazil have at their disposal. Tite, as you mentioned there, sort of fashioning them into a, a unit that seemed to work very efficiently. Um, never really seemed to properly get going in this tournament, you know, despite all the early promise prior to the, the World Cup kicking off. Um, Umo, have you been disappointed? I mean, obviously, they've gone home now, but as a whole, were you disappointed with sort of the way in which Brazil played at this tournament? And speaking on that Belgium game specifically, then, um, was that a showcase of Belgium sort of finally, um, you know, talented individuals that we know they have clicking as a unit, knowing what their job was to, to counter Brazil and executing that plan effectively? Yeah, I think if you actually, um, I think what happened with Brazil is, you know, Brazil, I don't think, it's not something that they had to emphatically win every game. You know, with Brazil, they are tainted always by the 1970 Brazil. People expect them to wow you. Yeah. Um, they've been World Cup champions a few times without actually playing great football, winning on penalty shootouts, with grinding out results. And I think that's the new Brazil. That's been the new Brazil for a very long time. I mean, that is Brazil. They're not there to entertain us. They're there to win. And um, that's what they were doing. And I think leading up to Brazil, leading up to, sorry, the game against Belgium, um, you know, I think there was this confidence that, you know, we've got this. We, we can manage against them. I think they were sucker punched massively by those two early goals. The second goal was a quick counter-attack. The first goal, if you look at it, is an own goal. I mean, that should be, you shouldn't be conceding goals like that, really. And I think you cannot underestimate the importance of Casemiro in that side. I mean, he is a Champions League winner for three years in a row. He's someone who's the, sometimes he's the only midfielder when he plays for Real Madrid. And at Brazil, you know, they relied heavily on him. Um, losing him and then having to come up against, uh, come up against De Bruyne, and also, you know, having Fellaini, who's actually looked amazing for them. I don't know what's going on with him, but he looks excellent when he plays for Belgium recently. Um, like you said, it's someone who's going through the crest of a wave. I think Fellaini's having that right now. New contract. And, new contract. Yeah, new, new contract, new money. Here new to stay. Money <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I mean, you know, so with Brazil, I think, you know, they thought Fernandinho, who's, as we know, in the Premier League, is a very, very good defensive midfielder but he's no Casemiro and I think they really missed him and uh, they just couldn't manage to you know just deal with the pressure of it and I think what ended up happening is you know this was the time the chickens came to roost you know the the reliance of not playing Douglas Costa when I think he would have offered a really good variation from the right wing you know even though to be fair to Willian he had a very good game the last game he played against Mexico he was excellent and he was their man of the match so he did deserve to start but this is a game where I think they really needed Douglas Costa up against, you know, the left side, which is the weakness of Belgium. And the right back is the weakness of Brazil. And I think, um, so if they did have someone who's excellent, 
they would have to have been a bit more, you know, wary of attacking them from the whenever they went forward from the left side. And uh, that's what they really missed. Um, he came on. I think they were unlucky. If we actually look at it, I think with uh, Belgium, you know, there was a lot of chances that came Brazil's way in the second half. They could have easily got that second goal. They didn't manage it because of some world-class save from um, Courtois. But uh, I think I think Brazil had a good campaign. I don't think they were terrible. It wasn't a big club, a big country coming here and not performing. It didn't do a Germany or it, I, they didn't do like a Spain or something like that. I think they just uh, were a bit unlucky, really. And it is tournament football and you get one opportunity and on the day, if you don't get the goals, then you go home and that's what happened to them. I completely agree. Yeah, Tom, would you agree, agree with that as well? I mean, just one question around Brazil then. That, that. I guess I'll put to you then is I saw people following that loss, maybe talking about whether given Neymar's fitness, given Neymar's sort of run coming into the tournament, whether Brazil, um, I mean, it's understandable with, with a talent like Neymar that you want to give him as many opportunities to shine as possible, but uh, whether this team was perhaps built around the wrong player um, or if it sort of seemed that way as the tournament progressed, do you think it's a case of what Umar said there in terms of just, yeah, it's on the day, Belgium had a number of outstanding performers, both in attack and also Courtois as well. Some huge saves there. Um, or do you think there was something perhaps a little bit dysfunctional about this Brazil side that we didn't see? It's it's a bit of both. Um, it's, they made some tactical tweaks for the tournament, which were interesting ones. Um, Danny Al- losing Danny Alves at right back meant that they couldn't play Coutinho right wing because that would leave them completely unbalanced on yeah. that side. So they had to drop Coutinho into the midfield. That un- that then unbalanced the midfield. Um, and Casemiro was able to hold their midfield together, basically as duct tape, because he's a phenomenal defensive midfielder, as um, as Umar pointed out, and bringing in Fernandinho, which is, I think, in, to some respects, you, you can't predict the best defensive midfielder in the Premier League, apart from possibly N'Golo Kante, to go and drop a 2 out of 10 in a World Cup quarterfinal. Y- you can't predict that. It's one of those things, isn't it? You know, you can't expect someone like Fernandinho, who is that good, to go in and have such a poor game in such a critical, for, cr- such a critical time in the tournament. Um, Brazil should have been 2-0 up before Belgium scored. And then when Belgium did score, it was a fluke on goal. So, you know, even in the first 10 minutes, it was clear that, that you know, Belgium were going to ride their luck a bit and Brazil just weren't having it on the, on the day. They brought in, dropping Renato Augusto was a big decision that they got very, very wrong. He should have been playing more games than he did. Um, arguably, Willian shouldn't have been playing either. Um, the Gabriel Jesus for me, no thing's interesting, but I don't think they made the wrong decision there. I think Tite... As I say, made one or two interesting tactical tweaks, but they still had enough on the day. They still had more than enough quality. They they still completely outperformed Belgium on the game. And it was just a case of Brazil just didn't take their chances. Coutinho missed a sitter. Thiago Silva missed a sitter. Renato Augusto should have scored. Um, I think it was Fernandinho, actually, who who missed a really, really good chance off a corner as well just before just before Belgium scored. So it, I agree. They didn't have a bad tournament. In, and in many respects, they would have deserved to be in the semi-finals. Because I think ultimately they played well enough against competition that was in front of them. They didn't have it. They didn't do a Germany and completely implode. They didn't do a Spain and get trashed, but and you know lose on penalties to significantly lesser opposition. Um, they just did not have the luck and did not have the bottle on the day. And I think that is one of the things with Brazil. Brazil are unlike any other international team that there is that immense pressure. There is always going to be that immense pressure and that feeling of the pressure that comes with previous game, previous tournaments. You know, there's always a spectre hanging over Brazil that if they do not win the tournament, even if quarterfinals, semifinals, quarterfinals, semifinals, final are not a good result for Brazil, you have to win the tournament or you, you might as well not bother coming home. That's very much the attitude. And I think part of that seeps into the players and you get players like Neymar who 
are who are undroppable players who have to play because that's what they have to do it because if they if they lose even if they make the right decisions and lose it's not acceptable if x y and z don't play so it, it's very much a case of Neymar wasn't fully fit I think with Brazil this was very much a case of a lot of a lot of small things ending up plugging in plugging into one one big ultimately unfortunate result as for Belgium just briefly um I thought they got their tactics pretty good first half first 20 30 minutes they were excellent and then beyond that, they kind of limped through on a series of really strong individual performances. Hazard was terrific. Courtois was terrific. The two DMs did their jobs brilliantly to an extent, although to be fair, they were still opened up quite a lot. Um, although to be fair, you know, Brazil are a team that can open up anyone on their day. Um, so yeah, I think overall, I think Belgium did well on the night, but I don't think we've quite seen this Belgium side shake off. I think this is more a game that was more about Brazil than Belgium in many respects. I think we've not really necessarily seen this Belgium side at their full best yet, and we might see that against the French, but I think in many respects this was more about Brazil than Belgium. I think, uh, sorry if I can just add, um, I think the biggest line in football these days is Joga Bonito, Brazil playing great football. That's not something that's, yeah. that I've seen in a very long time. In a while. And um, I think actually we, we forgot to mention Lukaku's performance, which was just incredible. I mean... This is a performance where, you know, you saw it, you're like, this is what you thought you were going to be every week in, week out. This is what I thought Lukaku was going to be week in, week out. You know, this was someone who was running on the byline, getting to the byline, beating players, you know, just holding up the ball, bruising, pushing the ball off everyone. The players are just bouncing off of him. He's bringing the play in. He was everywhere. He was excellent. It was phenomenal. For me, this was the best uh, forward performance that I've seen in this World Cup, even better than Mbappe's, because, you know, Mbappe did it against the Argentina defence, who I don't think are that great, but this guy was up against Thiago Silva, Miranda, who used to play for Atletico Madrid, who plays for Inter Milan now. He was um, up against Marcelo. You know, I mean, it was excellent. I was personally really impressed with him. Fernandinho was fouling him. They just could not deal with Lukaku at all. And um, Hazard had a great game, Lukaku had a great game, De Bruyne had a great game. And I think that's the worry for everyone now, is that actually these three, their best players are performing and they're looking like the three best players with the goalkeeper. And for me, I've always had this theory that, you know, if you've got a world-class goalkeeper and you've got a world-class striker, that's all you need to win a tournament. Mm-hmm. And they've got both. So, you know, it is, they do look really terrifying, actually, when you think about mm-hmm. it. It's, 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 it's often been interesting with them as well. I think, especially when you look at Courtois and, and look at the way he performed last season, questions about him, questions about his consistency, his mentality, and um, seemingly answered those in that game um, against Brazil because there were some really big moments there for him. And uh, he seemed pumped himself as well. So I think it can almost sort of tie into what we're talking about with Jordan Pickford, you know, keepers that perhaps haven't had a great season before them, forgetting that, you know, dropping it for the tournament and picking up confidence each game that they play. Uh, speaking of a team that picked up confidence every single game that they played, um, you know, we, we talked about riding a wave. Um, you know, no side has done that more so than, than Russia did throughout this tournament. Host nations, of course, very little expected of them prior to the tournament. Um, you know, they go out sort of, I guess you could say heroically in the end, you know, given the effort that, that, that they ended up putting in against Croatia. 2-2 um, uh, at the end of extra time goes to penalties. Um, and of course, Croatia edged them out. Rakitic again with that sort of nerves of steel penalty moment as well. Um, Tom, I mean, what did you make of Russia's run? Um, it's that sort of familiar thing we, we, we have seen in the past 
perhaps not to this extent, um, where the host nation um, are given a, a boost you know, from that home crowd, really seem to feed off it. Cherish uh, a number of sort of star performers in the tournament, um, and yeah, I mean, especially with that late late goal and, and extra time, um, you do feel that that's the sort of thing that would only have happened because of that sort of um, extra boost of energy that they would have gotten from from playing a tournament in in their own country, right? Oh yeah, definitely. I think the Russians have been very, very strong all tournament. Um, it, it, it obviously helped them that they were in a group with two sides that were absolutely dire. You could make you could make good cases that Egypt and Saudi Arabia were the two individual worst teams in the whole tournament, even most Salah aside. I mean, I mean, Egypt were just dire, and Saudi Arabia were not much better. So, from Russia's perspective, it certainly helped that they didn't have to do too much to play really well in the group stages and then make it through to the last sixteen. I thought the Spain performance was excellent. I had a bit of a debate with Gags about this. He, he doesn't think that it was a great performance from Russia in the sense that he didn't think they did enough attack in an attacking sense. But they they neutered Spain really effectively. They basically played to Spain's weaknesses. I mean, Spain are one of those teams where their weaknesses are very, very, very well publicised. But even so, I thought the Russians played very, very well in that game and deserved to go through on the night. Um, they've got a lot of heart and a lot of spirit. And they certainly, as you said, they definitely got the boost from playing in front of the home crowd. And that late, late goal must have buoyed them. But I just think on the night, they were just really unlucky that they came up against the goalkeeper who's basically possessed at this point. I mean, Subasic has basically turned into some sort of penalty-saving god, um, which is incredible because <laughs> I didn't think that I didn't think this Croatia side would make it this far into the tournament. I really didn't. Um, Croatia are historically a side that don't lack in quality, but do tend to lack in bottle, do yeah. tend to lack in big game, big game nows. And uh, they've shown that, I mean, to, I mean, to an, to an extent, Croatia's ugly underbelly has reared itself in both their games, but they've somehow managed to find it together in the penalty shot. And you have to say Subasic has been a huge, huge part of that, as well as, I have to say, Dayan Lovren. I mean, I, I was looking at this in the chat and the, uh, the other week, and I said, you know, if Croatia are going to make it far into this tournament, it's got to be down to Lovren because he is the one element, the new, the one new fresh element to this side that's made a huge difference. We can talk about Rakitic, Modric. They've had, the, they've had Rakitic and Modric in this team for multiple tournaments now. Rakitic and Modric are two players of sheer individual quality that have been in this Croatia side for a long time and haven't been able to drag them through big games. So clearly something has shifted in that Croatian mentality. And I think if you watch Dejan Lovren on the pitch, he makes a huge difference in the way he shouts, the way he jeers players up. He's a, he is a leader on the pitch, one of those players that... And he gets derided a lot for this sort of thing, but he has come through a lot and he's a sort of player who has what it takes to step up and go, I'm, we're going to win this game. Because I say we're going to win this game. And I think him combined with obviously Subasic having a big performances have been really, really critical for Croatia. Yeah, it, it is interesting with Lovren as well. I think you, you do, for all that you could maybe question the occasional moments of, uh, I mean, you say occasional, obviously there has been a pattern in, in terms of the areas that you do see from him within a game, whatever. But it, it, just in terms of his mentality, as you mentioned there, also the way in which he seems to be liked by the, the dressing room. I mean, I mean, we've we've all seen the Instagram lives that happen after every sort of big result. Um, he's he's very much uh, a yeah, a key part of that dressing room, and and, and we've seen this beforehand. Even with players who haven't, haven't even ended up playing in those teams. You I mean we used to talk about it with Pepe Reina for Spain's team, you know, all those years ago, in terms of you know, the glue that holds the dressing room together. And, and you, you do just wonder whether um, you know, the key factor with Croatia, as you mentioned there, Tom, had always been questions around their mentality. You do wonder just whether 
you know, by the addition of a few new characters, and you, know, you mentioned Lover in there, but also Supersic on this god form that he seems to be on as well. When you've got that sort of confidence in you as a squad, perhaps that is what's helping Croatia find that extra level. Obviously, they've always had the quality, um, especially when it's come to ball playing with fielders. But um, yeah, they do look a little bit of a tougher outfit this time around. Umar, what did you think of that sort of game as well? Russia, again, big effort from them, big physical effort from them. Uh, showing a strong mentality in, in, in coming back and pushing it to penalties. But um, uh, Croatia, in, in this stage of a competition, what do we make of that? Because it's it's uncharted territory, really, for them beforehand. You spoke about uh, this, um, where they're to be considered. But um, now that they've made it here, and of course they're going to be up against England, how do you think they match up? I mean, is it a case of England... Uh, now forced to to ride their luck against a side like Croatia. I think firstly about um, just about a bit about Russia. I mean, it was beautiful to see Chersev um, turn back the roll back the years from his Villarreal days that got him the move to Real Madrid in the first place. You know, someone who looks really yeah. exciting, fantastic player, what a goal. fast technical player who's <laughs> yeah, who scored a few thunderbusters. Really, <laughs> I mean, in the World Cup, um, they, they were a joy to watch them. They were fantastic. They were brilliant against Spain, I think. And uh, they were really good against Croatia, you know. They were technically a better team. But Mario Fernandez was just outstanding in pretty much every game. And it's quite heartbreaking that he's the one who missed the penalty that pretty much got them out of the World Cup. Um, yeah, I think about Croatia, they look really good. And it's quite funny because this Croatian side is the most hated Croatian football team of all time. Um they, the Croatian public do not like this team. Um, I've been told this by a few Croatians. Right now. Really? Um, yes, I, yeah, I, I, because uh, the Lovren and uh, Modric both could be given suspended oh, yeah. <laughs> sentencing as well. I mean, uh, they've really not liked um, some of the players within this national team, and these are the main leaders pretty much. Personally, I think um, Subasic, well, I don't know the statistics, but apparently more than 40% save percentage when it comes to penalty goals. So this is nothing new. He's really good on penalties. And we need to avoid coming to penalties. I think the best thing is that Vesalico, who is their best defender for me, he plays for Atletico Madrid. He's arguably one of the top five right-backs in the world right now. He's injured, so he probably won't play. But I think for me personally, wasn't Lovren isn't the shining light of the centre-half pairing that is for Croatia is Vida he's the one who scored the goal and it was heroic at right back when he had to be in that game in extra time I think he's been absolutely excellent and um, for Croatia and I thought Lovren did actually make a few mistakes in the last game against um, Russia that I think against a better opposition he will get punished and the thing you know if I'm a Croatian fan I'm not going to I'm going to look at what Kane's done to him in the past a few times, actually. Uh, once at Anfield, where he pressed him and he kind of rolled around him, used his Lovren's momentum against him and led to an opening that led to a goal. So I think Kane would, if Kane manages to isolate Lovren 1-1, one, one, I think that's somewhere we, we can threaten them. And I think that's what we're going to try to do, especially if Marcelco's not playing as well. So there's not going to be the right, the right back there, the first choice right back. So I think that's something we should definitely look at to do. Also, Luka Modric isn't the youngest player, and he's played back-to-back extra-time games, same with Rakitic. And I think this is somewhere where we can definitely try winning the game is 
just avoiding the midfield the way we Liverpool did against Roma really I think when it comes to midfield they are far superior to us I think in many ways one of my favorite strikers used to be Mandzukic who's been ruined by Juventus by playing on the left wing so much that he's actually forgotten how to play as a center forward sometimes so um you know he's not the same player that uh, you would expect him to be so I think really if we manage to go a bit more direct keep it on the flanks you know we can really I think we can beat them Croatia but this Croatian side have nothing to lose which is scary they've got that belief for winning back-to-back penalties um, they've also got champions you know they've got Modric who's been the best right, best central midfielder in the world football for the past probably five years he's an excellent player and um, that's the issue we've got you know we're up against you know some really good players here and uh, the scary thing is is that even though they've got superior midfield they're the underdogs in many people's eyes so they will come into this game with nothing to lose and a belief that they're the underdogs and we're the ones who are supposed to you know get the result and i think yeah we've got more to lose in this game yeah it's an, it's an issue it is an issue with that sort it's it's coming home starting as a joke and now actually turning into something that's that, that, that sort of pile pressure on us but i think it, the physical side of things i think is definitely going to be interesting in terms of they have gone through these two, you know, big Titanic contests. Of course, they've had sort of days in between to rest, but you do wonder how that will affect them if they if they come up against a team that aren't perhaps as as um, as talented in midfield, but perhaps have the legs on them in midfield. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays a uh, plays into things when that game does happen. Of course, but the last one we want to talk about before we actually wrap things up and then maybe have a little. Um, prediction as to, as to how we think these, these games are going to go um, is of course Uruguay losing out to France um, uh, I'm sure you've all seen the goalkeeping sort of howler from Musilera. Um felt felt sad for him a little bit in terms of you, you see the way that ball swerves absolutely horrible to deal with um, similarly so as well um, you know, the surprise of Uruguay um, with, with Godin and Jimenez uh, conceding a goal from a set piece is, is something that I think they're going to be uh, very upset about for a long time. Does that f- fantastic header from Varane. Um, Tom, what did you make of this contest? Again, it seemed to me that France um, not clicking entirely in terms of you know, perhaps on all cylinders, which again is perhaps a little bit scary in terms of what they had left to left to offer in this tournament. Uh, and Uruguay maybe suffering from the loss of Cavani, not having that added threat, um, but also um, uncharacteristic errors that creeped into this game. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't able to watch this game live because it was a three o'clock on a Friday and I was working. But when I got home and saw the highlights, I you could tell instantly it was going to be a very, very poor game because there was only six minutes of highlights and two <laughs> minutes of the. And I was two and a half minutes into those highlights and absolutely nothing had happened. Um, it's one of those games that ultimately is going to be defined by goalkeeping. Um, you've got two huge moments in the game. One is you've got to be pulling off probably the save of the tournament, and then at the other end, Muslera basically chucking one into his own net, and that's how it is sometimes, you know doesn't necessarily matter who's the best team on the day. It's just which team's key players step up in the key moments. Uh, it's like Umar said, you know, if you've got a world-class goalkeeper and a world-class centre-forward, you can basically do anything. And in, in many respects, France's world-class goalkeeper got them out of got them out of jail a little bit in this game. Obviously, they, they scored the goal off the set-piece before then anyway. But, um, but yeah, it was just a case of the clutch moments. I think with the French, what's really, really interesting is that Deschamps getting a lot of flack for them not playing particularly well which I think is wholly unfair when you consider that what he's actually done is made them an extremely solid unit. He's made them very, very hard to beat, very, very hard to score against. Um, Uruguay, you know, 
couldn't get anywhere against them. These were two very, very well organized, very, very strong defensive sides, which is why it was quite a drab game. That's, you know, that's a credit to both sides as opposed to necessarily a flaw. Um, the only game where the French have opened up was against Argentina, where they were basically, where basically they ended up with two situations where it was a couple of, not flute goals, but a couple of brilliant goals forced them to open up. Um, and even then they only conceded, you know, one expected goal, 1.0 expected goals. So the French are a side at the moment that are extremely well organized, extremely hard to beat because they basically, they, they've watched Portugal in the Euros and they've gone, well, why don't we just do that? We've got enough individual talent that we can basically, you know, play an extremely defensive team. Not an expensive, not expensive team, but an ex- ex- defensive style. Be incredibly hard to beat and say, oh, well, we've got Mbappe and Griezmann up top. So someone's going to do a goal, aren't they? And it's working really well for them. Um, you know, they look, they look difficult to beat. And then when they had to open up against Argentina, when they were forced to basically go and attack the game, they were able to do that because they've got the players to do that. So with France, I think, Deschamps basically gambling in the sense that he's saying what we need to do is let the de- sort out the defence and the attack will sort itself out. And yeah, to an extent, they've rode their luck a little bit with that. But when you've got players of Mbappe and Griezmann's quality, you can to an extent just basically say, we're going to defend you two or three individuals, go out and do something special because you're capable of doing it. And I think I think they're the team to beat this tournament. I really do. I, a lot, I know Imar's a huge fan of Belgium. I think France will take Belgium apart. Because I think France have got the right setup to counter Belgium's setup. Um, I think the French have got have got the the right organisation and the right players to basically hurt to really really hurt Belgium. Um, and I think they've got the big game experience as well. This is a France side that have got a lot of elite level players who played at at the top of their game. Obviously Belgium do as well, but Belgium I don't think have quite as many out and out winners in that yeah. squad. They've got a lot of players who are really talented, but don't necessarily have what it takes to go all the way. I think you've got players like Eden Hazard, who I think Hazard and De Bruyne are probably the two in that squad that maybe transcend their quality and are actual out-and-out winners. Courtois obviously another one. But with France, they've got so many players who are just capable of winning games and winning major tournaments. And I think that's why I think I'm just about back in the French. Yeah, you do wonder so also how important company could prove to be. He, he is fit for that game, right? I'm not, I'm not making any, any mistakes. Oh, I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, because of course, he, he's another one that when when fit and firing, he we've seen how he's had huge impact on Manchester City, which is sort of staggering to say, considering the array of talent they have, and it's still still that guy who comes in and seems to have an effect for them. Whether he can have the same effect for for Belgium, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. But yeah, Umar, how would you see them sort of setting up against... Um, you know, that, that, that France-Belgium game, and do you see it similar to Tom in terms of sort of France being perfectly sort of set up to, to counteract Belgium in, in how they play? And also, just a word on Uruguay there, um, uh, sort of the bruises of, of the tournament a little bit and something incredibly hard to score against. Uh, and then a game like this crops up where, as Tom mentioned, big moments that go against you and, and, and defensive errors, if you want to call them that, for both occasions. Obviously, the second one was one. Um, you know, in the most unlikeliest of games where you where you really do not need them. Was it just a case of of that being their undoing? Because obviously up until now we've seen Uruguay be quite a tough sort of cookie to crack, really. Yeah, I think the main problem with uh, Uruguay was when I saw the team shoes where I was a Maxi Gomez starting. You know, this is a guy who scored 17 goals and got four assists for Celta Vigo last year. I mean, 
he should have started if Cavani can't. If Cavani's not fit, Maxi Gomez should partner Luis Suarez. Not Fanny Giovanni. It makes complete sense. Oh, definitely not. I mean, <laughs> this guy's 21 years old. He's 21 goals he was involved in La Liga last year. For a side that's not in the top four of La Liga. I mean, it makes complete sense that he should be starting at the top. I think also the first goal, you know, with VAR and the way the new rules are, in an indirect free kick, the attacking side will always have an advantage. There's not much they could have done in that regard. You know, the run was excellent. The ball was excellent. It's a lovely little header right into the corner of the goal straight. I think the second one, well, that's just a huge error. I know the ball swerved, but, you know, Muslera is not a top-class goalkeeper. And the issue is you can, obviously... I, I still blame him for the goal that they conceded against Colombia. You know, I know Hamid Rodriguez's shot was world-class. But I think a good goalkeeper saves that. I mean, um, I don't know if everyone remembers that, but that was given goal of the tournament. It was like a volley. But it was straight yeah. at, I think it was straight at him pretty much. I mean, he could have just, you know, you see them always punch, go over the crossbar in his corner, and he re- he barely gets his hand on it. I mean, this isn't a really good goalkeeper. I think the main thing with uh, France is that... Um, I think obviously they're really solid. Um, you know, if you're going to racially stereotype a French squad, you're going to say North African central midfielders were really solid defensively. That's something that's I've seen in my whole life. You know, since I was a kid. You know, they used to have Vieira and Makélélé there. They've got uh, now they've got Kanté, Pogba, Matuidi. You know, with Matuidi, he was doing a really interesting role for them, where he was playing not really as a left winger, but he was someone who off the ball. You know, he's become like he's become a central midfielder, but in a wider position. Something that you know David Silva used to do for Manchester City sometimes, where you know he's keeping the ball process. You know, he's just part of the transition, the transitional play for the passing and stuff. But um, I think personally, I think you know, if you look at the front three of Belgium, you know, I think they can really cause them problems. I think Lukaku up against. Um, you know, up against the Umiti, I think he's got the better of him there. Um, De Bruyne, I think, will be picking up spaces in between. He knows everything about Pogba. He knows everything about N'Golo Kante. Um, I'm sure that um, Eden Hazard, who trains with him week in, week out, is also in the air of his teammates telling him, you know, you know everything, you know, like the certain zones that he doesn't like to go out of the blind sides that every player, every midfielder has. Um Eden Hazard, someone who I think will cause Pavard a lot of problems. Pavard's centre-back playing at right-back. He's done a good job there, but he isn't a right-back. And I think that's a position that, once isolated, he can he can be got at, really. Um, personally, I think this is something, it might come down to set-pieces, but I think also having someone like Fellaini can really there help. There we go. You know, there we go. Fellaini... <laughs> I mean, if you actually look at Fellaini's <laughs> record in big games, it's a bit of a joke. Come off the guy, hour. <laughs> come off the hour, come off big head Fellaini, you know, with his big chest and just, like, knocking the ball around his, <laughs> his pure shithousery. And I think it's something that Portugal did really well against them. You know, Portugal, you know, rolled them around the floor and then, you know, they they pushed them around and they got the winner. And I don't think Hugo Lloris is as good a goalkeeper as... Um, Courtois, if it gets to penalties, I'm backing Courtois. Even before then, if it comes to like pot shots from range, I'm backing Courtois in that regard as well. I think personally they've got the better players. Um, and I generally believe, I think, 
I think they're going to do it, man. I, I mean, I look at I look at Lukaku, and I don't, I haven't seen, you know, I don't think Giroud can do what Lukaku's capable of doing. Um, Giroud is also someone who is limited, and once he comes across someone like Toby Alderweireld, he comes across um, Batongan, Company. You know, these are big dominant centre backs who play against him week in week out. Um, they know his game inside out. You know, they're not going to be uh, sucker punched by what he can do. They know what he can, you know, deliver. And also, uh, Munia is someone who's very underrated, but he's excellent. You know, he's an absolutely excellent player who, um, I think when he comes up against Matuidi or is it Tolisso on that side, I think he'll be able to deal with the physicality and presence of there. And you never know with Nasir Chadli, who trained under Tony Pulis. He knows, <laughs> you know... The, the winger for Tony Pulis is pretty much a fullback for someone like Jurgen Klopp. So, you know, the similar defensive duty. So he'll be given that left wing back role. And um, I think personally, yeah, I think Belgium will beat them. Definitely. This is a very interesting sort of take here. You, 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 you're bringing up Chadley's education under Tony Pulis. Definitely. Fellaini, the big head. Basically, you're just trying to tell us that you're, it's all set up for a, uh, World Cup final where it comes down to Harry Maguire's head against Fellaini's head. And, and how beautiful would that be? <laughs> it would be absolutely, again, Big Sam. It would basically weeping, be a Premier League game. When somewhere. you think about it, it's a Premier League game. If it's Belgium versus England, that's Premier League advert for the whole world. You yeah. know, that every player pretty much plays yeah. in the Premier League. And then Sterling scores a tap in, in the end to, to, find, to find the answer at all. No, I think what's more ideal is that Sterling hits the ball, hits... It's an open goal, it hits the post, comes out, and then on a rebound, Kane scores. And then everyone just loses their rag. And then it's like, whoa, Harry Kane with the finish. I think that's the more predictable outcome. But yeah. All right then, guys. I mean, obviously, so so those were the quarterfinals, and then we've got the semifinals to look forward to. Um, just before we wrap up then, I guess just go um, uh, go through the, both games there and sort of tell me what score lines you're predicting, what results you're predicting. Tom? Uh, France, Belgium, um, and uh, Croatia, England. Uh, what are you expecting? Uh, 2-0 France. I think it'll be similar to the Uruguay game. I think Belgium will come at it with a lot of physicality and be surprised by how well the French stand stand up to it. Um, England, yeah, Croatia. 1-1, uh, <laughs> extra time, penalties. Oh, no, he's okay, okay. He's... I am not. I am not going to predict which which team out of England and Croatia is going to win on penalties. Um, that said, it's coming home, so coming <laughs> it's got to be England. <laughs> Just the generic. Um, and then, obviously, uh, Tom's gone with France, comfortable two 0 win over your Belgian side. There, are you uh, are you going to differ on that? And then also Croatia, England. Don't decimate Fellaini. I think uh, what's actually going to happen is I think Belgium will win. Um, two one or three one. I think they're gonna absolutely dominate the French, bully them around, wow. and show them who's boss. Um, and as for England, I think if it gets to extra, if it gets to penalties, I think we lose hands down. I think, you know, this is a team that's back to back one on penalties. Subasic's record on penalties is a bit of a joke. It's terrifying, really. Um, I think, but I don't think it'll come to that. I think they're gonna tie in the second half. I think we can win this game one nil. 1-0 or 2-1. It's going to be close, but I think we win that game. Uh, it doesn't go to extra time. Yeah, e- either way, both of you are predicting a sort of a, 
particularly agonizing game in that game. So I'm very yeah. much, I'm very much looking forward to that. Anyway, guys, yeah, thank you so much for helping us sort of preview both those games there. Um, talk through the quarterfinal action. Plenty of drama in this, in this tournament so far. I'm sure there's going to be uh, plenty more to come. Um, and, and, and that question will be answered. Is it coming home? Is it en route? Who knows? We'll, we can, we, we're going to find out this week in terms of if it's one step closer. Um, but, uh, make sure to keep listening to these, to these AI World Cup pods. We'll, we'll be back following these semifinals to, to cover all the action. And, uh, yeah, just keep it tuned into Anfield Index. Uh, and, and before we do go, uh, go guys, Tom, did you have anything to plug on your end? Uh, yep. I've got an article coming out imminently on Sayo Mane. Uh, I've crunched some of the numbers. I wanted to see whether or not he was still, uh, still one of the most important players or still the most important player in this Liverpool squad. And you'll have to wait for the article to find out whether or not he is. And the writer's pod, which you mentioned, at, obviously, at the start, I co-host with Leanne Prescott. Uh, we work really hard on it, and it's a great show to do. We've got one coming out in the next day or so. Uh, we're we're uh, doing, we were going to be recording 24 hours after we record this one, and that's going to be on Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, and it's going to be on the sort of general atmosphere around the club at the moment with FSG and Klopp harmonising. So that'll be a really interesting one. And, uh, and Yeah, obviously, I hope you listen to the pods. And I obviously keep listening to this pod as well because it's been a really, really good World Cup and you guys have done a fantastic job keeping these pods going. That's very kind, very kind. And, and Umar as well, great to have you on this first pod here with AI. I look forward to speaking to you more on Anfield Index, of course. Um, and I guess that just leads me to tell all of you who are listening that uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's coming home for England, is it? Who knows? I'm, I'm not prepared to go all, all out on a limb yet, but... Um, very much looking forward to uh, Belgium and Fellaini battering France, um, as Umar has, <laughs> has predicted on this pod. So, yeah, thanks for listening, guys, and uh, we'll, we'll be back with another pod following the semi-final. So, keep it tuned to Amazon next. Network.